Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Keynote. Last month, we did a show uh, with a young writer, first-time writer, Tobias Rose Stockwell. Uh, he has a new book out on how the internet has become an outrage machine. Uh, the book is appropriately titled Outrage Machine, How Tech Amplifies Discontent, Disrupts Democracy and What We Could Do About It. And it was a particularly interesting conversation. And so last week when I was in New York, I sat down with Rose Stockwell uh, in a real place, not online. And I asked him to begin when exactly he thought or recognized that the internet was becoming an outrage machine. So uh, the moment I think we all realized that something strange was happening with social media was uh, during the year 2016. Uh, I was working uh, as a strategist with one of the nation's largest news producers and uh, I was watching something very strange happen with how they were packaging news and uh, how the bottom was falling out of their industry. Uh, it turns out uh, everyone's eyeballs had gone to social media at that one mo moment in time. And traditional journalism wasn't cutting it. Uh, people didn't seem to care about traditional journalism. They were just interested in the viral hit in the uh, you know in the, the hot headline and uh, and yeah so I was I was watching this kind of was uh, there a, a particular date a moment a month a day in 2016 uh, it was over the course of about six months while I was working with uh, one of the nation's largest news producers uh, that I realized that things what were, was the name of that company I can't say unfortunately what? but <laughs> contractually I can't say yeah. uh, because it was uh, under NDA but uh, but they control and what were you researching how people were digesting the news uh, I was researching what was wrong with their business and what they could oh, do I to see. fix it so you were a consultant you were brought in yeah to help to them. look at a big publishing company That's and right. you began to see that something was seriously wrong. Do you remember what month that was? Uh, it was between the months of, I believe, February uh, and and the summer. So, yeah, February and, and uh, July or so, yeah. And, of course, 2016, when people think of that year, they think of the, the Trump-Clinton election. Of course. It all bound up in that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the lead up to all this toxic craziness we were seeing on social media. Uh, and we really didn't have any cultural antibodies uh, for it at that moment in time. You know, we, we hadn't yet kind of understood that uh, post that you see on, uh, on Facebook is not the same thing as a post that you see on, uh, on the New York Times, right? We hadn't quite figured, figured out that, you know, a post from your uncle um, should maybe be less, uh, given less credence and validity than, um, than a traditional journalistic source. So that was a problem. What was your first social media account? Do you remember? Uh, I had a MySpace account, but actually before that, um, 
uh, a Friendster, a Friendster account even before that. Yeah, so I was pretty early on social media. Uh, you know, my initial interest in writing this book actually came from a very pre-social media social network experience that I had as well. Um, uh, touch upon this briefly, but I, I was traveling through Asia as a backpacker in 2003, uh, well before Facebook and Twitter and the current era of social media. Uh, and I, uh, I met this monk who was looking for help in rebuilding this irrigation system and I got sucked into this project. He thought I could help them rebuild this, uh, this reservoir. Um, I was a backpacker, a poor backpacker at the time. Um, but my friends back in, uh, back in California had designed a, a really basic social networking platform. And so I put this plea out there on the social networking platform. Um, and it went massively viral, and I ended up with a huge amount of support to, to work on this project and to uh, raise money and capital and interest for this random group of monks in the middle of Cambodia. So uh, that was like the first chapter of my life in social media. Uh, um, the person that designed that platform, one of the people that designed that platform, that very early social networking platform, went on to be uh, one of the first engineers at Twitter. So uh, so I was a, I was a bit was earlier. That? Uh, I can't. I can't mention their name, Probably. unfortunately. Yeah, so. <laughs> You're under NDA. I, I'm under friend DA actually with them. <laughs> yeah, sadly. Uh, but so you got into this in 2003, mm -hmm. given the promise of social media mm -hmm. as a uh, a social entrepreneur, shall we say, in Asia. Yeah. You saw that it, what could bring people together. Is yeah. that what the promise? That's was? right. Yeah, and it really did feel like this amazing new power, right? This this power of virality that we suddenly had. It was this, this very special new capacity to reach millions with a, uh, you know, with a, a, a simple click, a simple post, uh, something that appealed to emotions. Uh, you could take a very small cause and turn it into something that uh, everyone paid attention to. And uh, yeah, it turns out, you know, that same dynamic of taking a small cause and getting everyone to pay attention to it is the same thing that allows for political extremists and conspiracy theories to run rampant and explode across uh, our collective consciousness. So, so guys, given my math, I think I'm estimating that 13, 12, 13, maybe 14 years between your initial experience 2003 yeah. and, uh, in Asia as a backpacker, social entrepreneur, and then this wrote the Damascus moment in 2016 with the Trump election. Yeah. Um, did stuff happen in between? Do you remember the Arab Spring? Do you remember the birth of Twitter and Facebook yeah. and my, uh, the demise of MySpace and right. the appearance of Instagram? Were there other uh, interesting dates, moments on your road to Damascus? Yeah, so there's three very specific things that happened, uh, three feature sets that were launched with very little fanfare between 2009 and 2012 uh, that I think really hypercharged uh, social media and turned it into something that's very difficult for us to put down. Um, those three features are, and you recognize them right away, social metrics, so like the like button, the visible numbers beneath each of our posts, uh, the one-click share or the retweet, which is the ability to press a single button and spread your, your message to your entire audience. Uh, and the algorithmic feed, so the rank ordering of content by engagement versus just chronological. 
and those three features, I think, really did. So they were all launched with very good intentions, but I think they really did fundamentally change the type of content that we see online, uh, inadvertently uh, tilting us towards a certain type of public performance and outrage that has come to dominate most of our politics. Is, do you think, public performance, by definition, outrage? Can you have public performance which isn't outrage, that doesn't lead to outrage? Absolutely. And, you know, our social media, uh, there's a lot of social media that's public performance that is actually very entertaining and educational and interesting and fun. Uh, you know, a, a lot of content that's online, most of the content online, I think is very valuable and, uh, and really, uh, you know, like enriching and, uh, and fascinating and fun to watch. Uh, there's, there's a huge quantity of the internet that I love. Um, uh, it's that there's this very specific set of, of uh, kind of toxic moral uh, grandstanding that happens on social media that is very poisonous to our collective understanding of the world and our collective understanding of democracy and what we can do. Uh, to uh, to advance our own agendas, uh, so I think it's I think it's a real uh, is it is definitely a double edged sword. There's wonderful things about it, but um, there's this very specific set of outrageous kind of uh, repercussions that come from it that are that are specifically problematic. There's an old bumper sticker in Berkeley, California, where I used to live. Uh, I'm not sure how old it is. It's always on old cars that said, uh, if you're not outraged, you're not watching or you're not looking. Of course, it's an old leftist sticker probably referring to Reagan or Vietnam or Nixon. Why shouldn't people be outraged, Tobias, either on the left or the right, given the inequalities, the corruption, uh, the global warming crisis, and so on and so forth? Isn't outrage a, a logical conclusion if you actually look at the world yeah absolutely uh, I think that bumper sticker was if you're not outraged you're not paying attention uh, which is uh, which totally makes sense in the context of a lot of major problems that we face right now you know there's a huge number of, of real threats to our well-being as a society and as a world um, what's really important to recognize is that is that not all of those threats are uh, are real right like some of them uh, some, everyone chooses to, to of course, absolutely. Real absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But but how we weight those threats as either kind of mortal threats to us as a species, or as small scale uh, problems that need to be solved within a particular locality, versus kind of these grand narratives that um, that are problematic for us. Um, I think is re it's really the, that's the critical process and function of democracy is to help us weight and, uh, and uh, approach the threats with the right levels of, um, of intensity. Because if we, if we overweight certain threats uh, and underweight other threats, real threats, moral threats, then, um, then we actually are in a really difficult position. And that is, I mean, I want to be clear here. Outrage is a very important uh, emotion for us, uh, particularly in democracies, for helping us understand what is broken uh, and for helping us organize around solutions, right? Democracies are kind of organized like an outrage machine to help us turn outrages into policy that solve problems for us collectively. But key to that is having good information about what is actually happening in the world. And that's what really, uh, what social media has really uh, brought out of balance recently. So let's go back to the period you said between about 2009 and 12, where social media changed. Uh, 
think you mentioned one of the changes. You might go into a couple of the others as well. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so each of these changes were uh, were great on their surface. They were good for engineers and designers. They're good for consumers. Uh, they make a lot of sense. Each of them. So. Uh, so the first one is social metrics. It is, uh, you know, like I said, the, the like button. Justin Rosenstein, who uh, originally worked on the like button, who was the one of the original creators of it, he said he wanted to make positivity the path of least resistance. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've met Justin before. He seems like a really nice guy. Uh, um, and a lot of people that implemented these tools really did have good intentions in mind when they were working on them. So something like the uh, the like button, uh, it you know, positivity. <laughs> you think it's a great thing. It's good for consumers because uh, it's cheap for me to give you a like, um, but it is uh, e extremely valuable to receive a like. You know, it's very easy to, to to pass on that positivity to someone else, but to receive it on the other end, it's it's a it's a really nice feeling. Uh, so that in itself, you'd expect it to kind of just have universally positive outcomes. It turns out uh, when you start to rank order content that way, you end up in a strange comparison game. And you end up uh, tracking uh, who says what about which content when. And when we are comparing content online, uh, it does something a little strange to our brains. Because if you post something that gets a huge amount of engagement, a lot of likes, a lot of shares, a lot of favorites, um, that's something that feels, that feels good, feels great. But when you post something that doesn't get that much, you suddenly, you're, you're trying to figure out what, what's wrong here. Like, what's wrong with the signal? What's wrong with the machine? Why, not, why am I not getting this kind of response that I deserve in this process, right? Um, and what that is, is that's, that's, a, that's hitting a reward center of our brain that is, actually, uh, that is actually kind of hacking our brain and habituating us to a certain type of response from the system. Uh, there's a famous psychologist named B.F. Skinner who worked on this, uh, on, on research around this back in the 1930s. Um, he he uh, built these boxes that he would put pigeons and small uh, small mammals into, and he flash a light, and there's a, there was a button. If they pressed the button, they would get food. It turns out um, if the animal pressed the button, they got food, they would be trained to know that the button meant food, right? But if you added randomness to it, you added randomness to it. So sometimes they press the button, sometimes they don't get food, sometimes they get food. Uh, it actually kind of hacks the brain of the animal and they go a little bit crazy. They get obsessed with pressing the button to try to figure out what the pattern is. And our brains are, are particularly susceptible to this. Um, it's called intermittent variable rewards. And it is a system of, of uh, engagement for our brain that fundamentally uh, hacks our reward centers. So there's other industries that have learned to, uh, to exploit this particular vulnerability, uh, one being uh, the industry of gambling, uh, where you can put people in a room, you can tell them to press the button, and sometimes they'll get a reward and sometimes they won't, and they will spend hours and days and months of their life in these rooms uh, feeding quarters into a machine called slot machine in order to get uh, responses. So, uh, so that's an inadvertent outcome of uh, adding yeah, social metrics. What he's doing, you say he's a nice guy, but he must have uh, certainly, if not him, others at Facebook knew exactly what they were doing. I don't. I don't think so. I think that. I think it's very easy when you're inside these companies to feel like you're just giving people what they want. You know, the metrics show it's what what people want. They they like it. <laughs> they like the button. They say they like the button, and they keep coming back. It's great for retention. It's great for the bottom line. So, and I, I don't think it came from, from a, a, a point of, of malice or what kind year of was that? Uh, malicious intent. Uh, for the for the like button, I think it's two thousand nine. 
2009. Yeah. And then the third piece? Uh, so uh, the one-click share, right, which is also a, a, a retweet. Uh, um, you might remember in the early days of Twitter, people would just copy a link and they put it into their text box and they do RT space and they put the, the content there. Um, I know the people that worked on the uh, original retweet button. You were in San Francisco at the time. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah I was. And what were you doing there? I was a designer. Uh, I was a product designer at the time. And who were you working for? Uh, I worked with a bunch of different companies. Some of which you might know. Some are probably <laughs> not around anymore as as it goes in the uh, in the in the startup ecosystem. But I was very I was very close friends with a lot of people that were working early at these companies, mm -hmm. um, and I was just very familiar with the mentality that went into building these products. They felt. Like they're good people trying to make useful things, and they weren't building an engine of Discord or anything like that. But uh, but yeah, so the, the the retweet button, which is the that was turned from a from an action that people were doing by copying and pasting uh, a link into a text box and then sharing it with their friends, that was turned into a single a single button, right? So you just hit one button and you automatically retweet it to your entire network. Uh, that again, on its surface, seems great. People are already doing it. Seems helpful. It's good, but even the, some of the earliest engineers that were working on this feature uh, had concerns and qualms about it. One of them, uh, and I, I'll say this: this, uh, what, yeah, one of them said it felt like handing a loaded gun to a five-year-old um, because this power of reach, of viral explosion, of, of uh, capacity for to, to create a viral explosion was so enormous. Um, and they were already seeing at that point in time some strange patterns emerge with, with virality around misinformation, uh, misidentification of content, context collapse, all these things that come from a single button being able to blast, uh, blast out a piece of information to your entire audience. Uh, and that was adopted by Facebook uh, soon after. So the, the one-click share on the mobile audience to, uh, to, to mobile, uh, mobile users happened a couple years later. So anyone having their smartphone in their pocket could see a thing, pass it on their, uh, to their, uh, their audience. And that, that created this kind of cascade of impulsive uh, emotional content that we, uh, we began to see starting in 2012. Tobias, do you remember the euphoria attached to social media when the Arab Spring exploded? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was very aware of kind of the optimism around these tools. I think we all were, if you were in Silicon Valley or even in the world at that point in time, you know, social media felt like a magical new tool um, that was for connection, it was for, uh, for you know, building community, but uh, there was <laughs> literally, this is a, a literal conversation that I, that I had with people at the time. It's like, you know, Facebook is great. It's a great connection machine, it's great. I remember someone literally saying to me, you can't argue that Facebook isn't good for democracy. It's just, it's such a good tool for democracy. And that was a very common idea at that moment in time, that people really felt like social media was this core tool for democracy. Uh, and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg built Facebook to get girls, but it's toppling dictators in the Middle East. How can it be so bad? Turns out it can. Was there a moment in that context when you realized that things had gone haywire in terms of the Arab Spring? Was it the beginnings of the Syrian yeah. Civil War, yeah. the coup in Egypt? 
I, I mean, I, I began to be a little bit skeptical of the of this uh, of this stuff around 2013. Uh, you know, 2016 was the day was the the time where I was like, oh no, this is some, these are some crazy downstream consequences with the news industry, with how we actually make sense of the world collectively. Before that, there was in 2013, I really felt this like weird stickiness. Uh, 2012 and 2013, this weird stickiness around these tools that that felt unhealthy for the first time. Um, I think you might remember what it was like. Um, you might, you might not, but if you had a smartphone in that era and if you were on social media, there was this new kind of tenacity that these tools had where it was like very hard to put it down. And there was a lot of just content that you'd see in your feeds that was just, it was angry, it was uh, upsetting, it was um, problematic. And, uh, and that stuff tended to stick to the top of our feeds because of the third feature, because of algorithmic feeds, algorithmic, algorithmic sorting for engagement. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so a basic algorithm that is rank ordered to keep our eyeballs there and to keep us entertained. One of the earliest metrics Facebook used was called meaningful social interactions. So things that based on a bunch of different weights and measures, you would find meaningful to discuss with your friends. Um, it turns out if you're angry about something, that actually tends to be a good discussion point, a good thing to capture attention, right? Um, and that's a signal that the algorithm picked up on that maybe we consciously didn't express interest in, but it was stuff that we would watch and pay attention to. The same way that, you know, if someone is in the corner fighting and shouting about something, you will all pay attention to the person in the corner uh, having an argument. Uh, that was basically what was happening. We were all in this new giant room together and all of our friends who got angry about, about things suddenly were at the top of our feet, suddenly were the center of attention. Uh, and we could, we could see these disagreements that historically would have been, I think, resolved mostly or, or, uh, or come to some kind of decent conclusion in a more private context. All of a sudden they became uh, cultural center points for all of us. Research is into the, what some people see as the epidemic of anxiety and mental ill health amongst young people, especially young women, have observed that something dramatic happened in 2012 uh, in terms of this descent into the epidemic of anxiety. Do you, and, and I know you wrote about this in some detail in the book, you've given a great deal of thought to it, did something, and I know you believe that there is an association between the mental health crisis and the crisis of social media, but did something happen in 2010, 11, 12 that, that triggered this dramatic shift in 2012 in terms of the, uh, the anxiety levels uh, of, of, of young people? Yeah, so here I will defer to my colleague Jonathan Haidt at NYU, who researches this stuff very closely. Um, but uh, but from from uh, my understanding is that it's very much part of the same system that we we suddenly were were given access to a new matrix of evaluation, judgment, performance uh, from our friends. Um, uh, and that change as a result of social media is one of the core reasons why we have ended up uh, with this, this new uh, kind of strange explosion of unintended consequences related to our emotional health. Um, you know, I cannot imagine what it is like going through middle school or high school today with social media being such a prominent part of how, how teens and tweens communicate, right? There, there's this incredible uh, pressure 
now. It's like gossip is already such a difficult thing when you're in <laughs> when you're in school, right? When you're a young child, um, you know, learning to kind of navigate in the adult world, learning to navigate amongst friends, uh, and and having the ability to bully uh, uh, virtually and digitally without ever seeing the results of your uh, your toxicity, the results of your your actions. Um, you know, bullying behind a, uh, you know, bullying behind a, a text box. Um, that's that's scary. I think, um, and uh, I think it's very, very, very hard for young people to deal with this new kind of cacophony of of, um, of, of judgment, performance, expectation that comes with this overlay of social media uh, onto our lives. And is there a connection between that crisis of anxiety which, amongst adolescents, which seems to have dramatically intensified in 2012 and the political crisis that metastasized if you to choose a word in 2016 yeah I think it's I think it's very much part of the same system uh, and I think that that you know social media is is uh, largely to blame for it I don't think that because um, I don't think it was intentional but I think this is where we've ended up uh, and it's it's unfortunate because we need to fix it we need to correct course you've mentioned Twitter and Facebook um, were there new networks created, particularly TikTok, that compounded all this or changed the crisis, changed the character of what was happening? Remember the first time you saw TikTok? Did you, did you immediately think this is going to be a huge hit or this is just a, another Facebook knockoff? Yeah, I know. Uh, and TikTok started very differently than Facebook. You know, it started as a as a tool for uh, kids to share dancing videos. It wasn't a, it wasn't uh, nearly as uh, as inherently kind of um, uh, I think uh, oriented towards any kind of uh, you know discourse or discussion or uh, any um, uh, judgment like extreme judgment like that. Um, and TikTok has tried its best to become a place of um, you know, kind of joyous, fun content, and they've—it's it's really tried to, you know, be useful and funny, and um, and they're an interesting case study because they have downgraded outrage where they can. Not always, but like in a lot of different verticals, they have removed content that tends to be more outrageous and more uh, more inciting. Um, uh, not always, and there's certainly different verticals that that do really well on TikTok that are, do get people mad about stuff. Um, uh, but but it goes to show just how powerful a lot of these algorithms can be in uh, in how we perceive information, right? So if TikTok can can demote political content and take it out of the feed and make it more about fun videos, uh, you know, it just it, it goes to show that, that there that's enormous potential for influence. You know, you can imagine in an election campaign like we have coming up in this next year. Um, uh, TikTok reaches, you know, over 100 million people in the United States. Uh, it's larger than uh, than you know any legacy media organization uh, uh, as it stands as they stand today. Um, and what it decides to demote or promote is essentially, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that could be that could have major political implications, right? To demote a certain story or promote a certain story during the election, and this is the same, you know, issue we saw with Facebook in terms of algorithmic control and manipulation. Uh, these tools are incredibly powerful at influencing public opinion, influencing our knowledge of the world, uh, influencing our emotional states, and so, uh, so without better legislation for uh, for addressing this new influence, I think we are really. Uh, we're really leaving ourselves open to a tremendous uh, 
amount of, of potential uh, 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 problems. So, Bas, you mentioned that uh, you had lots of friends who were with some of these platforms. But were you an early Twitter user? Do you remember when you first got your Twitter account, what year that was? I got my Twitter account in 2008, 2007. Fairly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, were you particularly excited when you got an account? Honestly, no. Twitter in its earliest days felt very useless <laughs> to me in the, in the earliest days of it. I still enjoyed Facebook at that point in time. But, useless uh, in what sense? Uh, it just it just wasn't I, so that was part of the time I was working in Cambodia and I was uh, I, I had no really use for it at the moment in time it just seemed like a uh, a place to kind of share your lunch uh, of course it turned out to be much much more than that you know what what did I have for lunch today um, you know what are you doing uh, what am I doing today it didn't seem that that helpful of course it turned out to be extremely helpful um, in the years afterwards and. Uh, I think it took me about two years to really click with the platform. At that point in time, it was a way to discover and connect with new people. I met a handful of really interesting humans on Twitter that ended up being really valuable friends uh, years afterwards. And so, you know, I need to acknowledge that these tools have actually really positively impacted my life as well. Right? There's pieces of these uh, these technologies that are, are incredibly helpful, and uh, some relationships that I wouldn't want to give up as they came as a result of of connecting via social media. And was there a moment on Twitter when you realized that this was, to use one of your words, toxic, but it had gone toxic? Yeah. Uh, again, it was uh, in, in, that, in that period, um, in, particularly in 2016, when I was working with, uh, with uh, the news organizations, um, when I, I recognized and started talking to a huge number of journalists that Twitter was actually, had become the primary vehicle for sourcing news and information for your average journalist. So the algorithms that, that dictate what we see on Twitter and the, the design decisions that dictate what we see on Twitter, those decisions were in, impacting journalists. And journalists were using Twitter to source discontent, to source information, to source uh, kind of man on the street interviews. Uh, in that process, uh, Twitter was becoming, uh, you know, uh, was becoming this central repository of information for the rest of us because journalists, if journalists uh, source information from Twitter and they share it with the rest of us, uh, that is going to fundamentally shift the type of uh, information all of us are seeing. So it, it shows that we're all on social media, even if we're off social media, we're actually all getting information from social media. It's a porous system. And there's a bunch of things that Twitter does uh, that allows it, that Twitter allows to happen. <laughs> I say allows to happen. It's just a, a use case for Twitter that I find to be particularly strange and kind of problematic, which is that you know a traditional uh, story, right? So you you want to write about write a story about something. Um, uh, a, a, a savvy journalist with a web publication can take a tiny piece of internet outrage they found on Twitter. It might be someone with five followers who says a snarky thing about someone else, someone in the public sphere, um, uh, you know, a, a politician, a celebrity. They can take that single snarky tweet and they can package a story around it saying, people are angry about ex-politician or ex-celebrity. Um, and they can they can basically make a headline, a, a whole story <laughs> that will get your click 
and get your ad dollar, you know, get your ad eyeballs um, from this one nothing, uh, you know, this, this, this nothing burger, so to speak, this tiny, tiny, tiny little uh, 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 event that had no no connection to um, to to the wider world, and people will click on those things, and they'll get angry themselves. You know, one of the key things. Did that ever happen to you? Did I ever get? Uh, uh, I mean, did you fall into the the Twitter? Oh yeah, absolutely. I I, I think we're all remember. Uh, yeah. Any anecdotes? Any years? Moments? Of the, the people are angry. When about? you suddenly became angry yourself, you didn't see strike me as a particularly angry person, but you were on Twitter, and suddenly you. You, you took on all the, the outrage that you've written about in your book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this whole book is kind of a manifestation of my outrage about the outrage to some degree, right? About how uh, these tools are really uh, causing enormous problems for society. Not, you're not putting it on social media. I mean, you're using social media. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm, I tend to try to mitigate my relationship with emotional outbursts on social media. I try to be as useful as possible. Uh, social media is, is like it's, it's a great place for emotional content but I think it's also a place for useful content so if you can try to make it as useful as possible uh, then you can get the same kind of traction without touching these emotional hot button issues but, but come back to my question was there a uh, do you have any some Twitter anecdotes of, of an incident which really just captured everything that was wrong that you experienced. Totally, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and, and it's hard to touch upon uh, upon any of these issues because what Twitter's really good at is it's, it's good at taking a single issue, innocuous issue, and, uh, and turning it into something that's kind of a political weapon on either side, uh, for either side. So uh, I'll mention one particular issue that you were all familiar with um, that is, was shockingly nonpartisan. But uh, there was this dress <laughs> that came along, uh, I believe in 2015, that, uh, that captured the minds of the internet uh, because it, uh, it could be seen by two parties, uh, by, by one individual as, uh, as uh, black and blue and by another individual as white and gold. Um, and uh, the fact that it was such a strong uh, a strong and uncontroversial, uh, or sorry, un, uh, unambiguous response that people had. People either saw it one way or the other way. That was the thing that made it so viral. So you can think about that as kind of a, a type of bi-stability. There's bi-stability is this term um, for, uh, for, for like a light switch. It can be either one way or the other way, right? So, so a bi-stable object um, on Twitter uh, a lot of political topics are bi-stable objects. You can only see it one way or the other way. It's very difficult to switch your opinion to the other perspective. So politics operates the same way, but Twitter is very good at sourcing these kind of bi-stable things that inspire tremendous... So back to the dress. So you had yeah. two groups of people. So it wasn't Trump versus Clinton. It, this, it wasn't even political. It, it was, was black and blue versus white and gold. Who thought... And, and, and why did that happen? How did it manifest? I mean, this is just a random picture that that uh, you know this woman took in, uh, I believe, in Ireland uh, or Scotland at the time. Uh, that that just happened to kind of sit in this kind of ambiguous valley uh, with our perception um, that uh, that that our that our brains uh, snap to one perception, one way of looking at it or another. Um, and then it will become horribly personal. One group 
insulted the other groups. I mean, sort of. This was biased and corrupt. I, I mean, look, this is the one kind of anomaly of the dress is that it actually uh, it. it, it kept itself from becoming a primarily political topic because there was nothing inherently political about it, right? But I think it's a fantastic analogy for exactly how these other bi-stable issues, right? These other issues that are so, that inspire so much confidence, but are actually inherently ambiguous, end up being generated and served to all of us on these platforms. Are you still on Twitter? Yeah. And do you remember what you thought when you first heard that, that Elon Musk might buy it? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I was I was hopeful when uh, Elon said he would potentially buy. I think we all were a little bit. Um, we meaning we all. I don't know. Maybe yeah. Maybe maybe that's a. He's not the most popular man in the world. No, 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 no. But I think I think the people that you know that that are in the space of technology were were modestly hopeful that he could. So you and your friends, your designer friends, your programmer friends in New York and San Francisco. Yeah. Why 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 were people optimistic? You think. Uh, because he, yeah, I, I was optimistic because he is someone that likes to take on big problems, uh, study them closely, and try to make things work better. Um, you know, the thing that I got worried about, and this was in his, uh, some conversations he was having in advance of purchase, I realized that he was very uh, naive is maybe the right word uh, about social psychology uh, and understanding the kind of underlying mechanics of social media. Like rocket science uh, is actually easier than social science in many ways. It's much more uh, malleable and tangible. And ironically, he, he does both. He's one of right, so yeah, he, he's created rocket science, but social science is much more difficult. And uh, I think that's one of the core problems is that, is that social science is messy. You need to check your biases constantly. You have to have a, a huge amount of data to understand what people are actually doing. And there's a whole bunch of intuitions that I think he is unfortunately missing when it comes to um, the nuances of, of product design and development. And it's not, it's not a machine in the same way that you know, an engine is a machine. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not as simple as that. And um, so, so uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I've been, I've been uh, saddened by the direction the company is going. Was there a moment when you realized that Musk wasn't the shining knight that you hoped he would be? Uh, yeah, I mean, if that happened within the first week that he was there in the company and uh, started uh, started making some some design decisions and product decisions and layoff decisions, like he he took he took out most of his trust and safety team in the first few weeks that he was there, and um, the, I think the trust and safety team still working at social media companies are some of the most important uh, important uh, jobs that that you can do uh, right now in the world. Um, they're like scientists that are trying to figure out what is actually wrong with the platforms, how to make them more fair, how to make them more, uh, uh, you know, more safe for all of us. And uh, finally, um, Tobias, uh, we've had a number of people on the show who have eliminated their Twitter account. They see Musk as the Antichrist. Seems to me as if Musk is just sort of captures what you describe in your book, uh, 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 the outrage machine now, or, or one of the important platforms of the outrage machine, is owned by a man who is both sort of uh, compounding all that, but is, is himself a, a product of this world, who always seems outraged and angry yeah. and personalizes everything and takes insult at the most silly thing. Yeah. Is, it, is, is that, do you think, what's happened with Musk, that the, 
the medium and the message have bizarrely converged? Yeah, I think that Elon has, you know, he's very online. He is extremely uh, obsessed with the tool of Twitter. And Twitter does some strange things to us over time. A lot of social media does this. But if you spend enough time embedded in, uh, in that world, social media trains us to act in certain ways, right? So depending on the types of content that you produce, um, you'll have certain segments of your audience and if you if you're you know if you're a, a student uh, a student of your of your audience and trying to figure out what actually gets the most engagement, uh, a lot of the time the most extreme content will get the most engagement. So there's this inherent pull uh, for us to uh, to change our behavior, to change our tweets, to change our posts, to make them a little bit more extreme to get the attention of our audience. Uh, and I think unfortunately Elon has been um, uh, somewhat somewhat influenced by his audience online. He's actually kind of become a, a more outraged and uh, more, uh, more extreme version of himself as a result. Uh, and you can find this across the board. You know, I, I, study, uh, I studied Trump in the early days of uh, 2011 on Twitter, and you can, go look, you can go back to Trump's earliest tweets and you can see, uh, you know, 2011, it was uh, June in 2011, he goes through each of his tweets and average, celebrity Twitter account he is uh, says you know buy Trump water uh, check out my new development and and that uh, Trump Soho and he, he just speaks openly about all of this you know vanilla celebrity stuff and there's one day in June when I believe and he's getting an average what of, year was this uh, 2011 I believe uh, there's you know, one day in June uh, that he's I believe he's watching Fox News and he tweets uh, something about Barack Obama being a radical and so his tweets go from an average of 40 retweets, 40 retweets, 40 retweets, and this tweet suddenly gets 2,000 retweets. All right, so this is like enormous signal. And then it goes immediately back to 40 retweets, 40 retweets, 40 retweets. Um, so you can see Trump beginning to actually change his messaging based on the content and the response that he's getting from his audience from that point. Twitter has become this kind of like little machine for, for uh, signal testing. And so he ends up, uh, after that point, tweeting more and more and more outrage content on a regular basis. And you can just watch his audience grow. You can watch uh, the, the emotional content in his tweets grow dramatically. Um, and you know we've known who Trump is my whole life. He's always been a public figure. Um, and he's always wanted the approval of media, right? He's always wanted the, the interest and the, um, the, uh, the eyeballs of the people to be on him. And Twitter became this very interesting new way for him to get more eyeballs. And I think that, that Twitter trained Trump uh, to be, be this more outrageous kind of blowhard uh, over time. And I think that you can look at the current version of the president and you can look to Twitter and see how he became who he is today. In another way then, that was the moment where Trump as a television star became Trump the social media star. That's right. And finally, finally, uh, Tobias, you've been very generous with your time. Um, a lot has happened in the last couple of years between 2011 and, uh, sorry, 2021 and 23, particularly in the last year, mm -hmm. in terms of new platforms, we've got threads coming out, we have all these so-called Web 3.0 distributed platforms. Um, I know part of your book deals with how we 
address the crisis of social media? Are any of these platforms the fix? And do you believe that uh, the mastodons of the world or the blue skies, are they the way forward? I think it's great that we have consumer choice. Uh, I think it's great that there's a lot of different platforms that are trying on new dynamics. But I really do think that from a broader uh, level, it's critical to have some government oversight in this uh, ecosystem. Um, uh, particularly, there's a, there's a law that's working its way through Congress right now called the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, uh, which I, uh, I think is a, f a great piece of legislation. It basically forces these companies to have some baseline of transparency to share their data with, gov with uh, uh, acad academia and civil society and researchers so that people can really look into the potential harms of these tools. One of the biggest problems with social media is it's very difficult to actually know what is going on because the data sets are guarded uh, and they're closed. Uh, so, uh, so it's very, very hard to get uh, actual uh, information about what is going on inside of these platforms. And uh, PADA, the Platform Accountability Transparency Act, is uh, potentially a, a fantastic uh, way of fixing that. And I think it could do a lot to, to help improve the um, social media world.